We shall turn again to John's Gospel in chapter 12. We can read again from verse 20. John chapter 12, from verse 20. There were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of the side of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a corn of heat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. And we are going to look particularly at the words in verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. I think it might be helpful for us, uh, first of all, before we turn directly to the consideration of the words of our text in verse 24, if we surveyed briefly the context in which the words are found, because there are events recorded in the chapter, the earlier part of the chapter, that we believe had a profound significance in the experience of the Lord Jesus Christ in view of the event that was soon to happen. And there are three events in particular that are mentioned here that were full of significance for the Lord. The first of these is the anointing by Mary in Bethany. And this is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. She took this fragrant oil, this very expensive oil, that was her own personal possession, and she poured it all upon our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we are to ask, what was the significance that the Lord saw in that? Well, it is recorded that he said, against the day of my burying has she kept this. He thought as the anointing of his own body for the burial. Now that implies that Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, must have had an awareness that Jesus was soon to die. And if that is so, she had a better understanding concerning the Lord than even his own intimate disciples. Because he told them on different occasions that he was going to die, going to be taken by cruel hands and crucified and slain, and yet the truth of his words did not seem 
to dawn upon our consciousness. Because when we did die, we were taken absolutely by surprise. But Mary must have understood that very soon the Lord was going to die. And she took this fragrant oil so that she might anoint him for the burial. Now, we are given an estimate of the value of this perfumed oil here in the record. We are told that it was estimated to be worth 300 pence if it were sold. Now, if we reckon that a penny, the Roman penny, the denarius, was a man's wages for a day's work, it would require a man to work for the best part of a year to be able to earn enough money to buy this fragrant oil. And Mary took it, knowing that it was precious, that it was valuable, and she did not reserve one single drop for herself. She poured it all on the Lord. Now she would have been quite entitled, she would have been quite entitled to use it for her own personal use. It was her own personal property. But there is something else in connection with this which I think we ought not to miss. And that is that shortly before now, her own brother Lazarus had died. And Mary loved Lazarus with a very deep love. And she was in great grief when he died. And yet it is clear that although she had this oil in the home, that she did not use it to anoint her own dear brother's body for burial. But she reserved it, that she kept it by her, and she used it to anoint the body of the Lord. And that speaks volumes for the love that Mary had for her Lord. She had natural sisterly affection for her brother, but she had a spiritual love for the Lord. She had a love that responded to the love that he had bestowed upon her. Well, Jesus saw in her action, he saw the anointing of his body for the burial. Then as we move on in the chapter, it is recorded that as Jesus was entering Jerusalem, that the people uh, took branches of palm trees, and that he borrowed a young donkey so that in fulfillment of an ancient prophecy he might ride on this donkey into Jerusalem. And they quoted from the, the scripture, the, the, Blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, thy king cometh, sitting on an ostmass's court. 
the Lord, of course, was particular that there should be the fulfillment of this prophecy that had been made about him. And so he sent to borrow this donkey. Now, the donkey was a young donkey. It had never been ridden before. If you or I were to try to ride on an untrained pony or donkey, we would discover that it would be completely unwilling to carry us. It would have had to be trained. But when the Lord sat on this donkey's back, it carried him quietly and calmly into Jerusalem. This has been its own. Now what, what significance did the Lord himself see in this event? Well, it was as it were, the Lord riding to coronation. Behold thy king cometh, sitting on an ass's court. He is riding to coronation. But it is not going to be coronation in the ordinary sense. It is a coronation that is going to be totally different. Because he is going to coronation through sweat and through tears and through blood and through death. History shows us that when kings were taking kingdoms, that it was at the cost of the toil and the lives of other people that they were doing that. But when the Lord is about to take a kingdom and go into coronation, he is doing it not at the cost of others, but at the cost of his own life that he is going to lay down. Now, he chose the donkey, that very humble beast of burden. He didn't choose a war horse, a steed, he chose a donkey. And he didn't need the pomp and the ceremonial that normally accompany royalty. He didn't need all that kind of thing because there was glory and there was majesty and there was dignity connected with his own person the eternal son of God who had become man there was the glory and majesty of his holiness there was the meekness and humility, and grace, and mercy, and compassion, and all the other perfect qualities that belong to him as our Savior. So he didn't need the outward trappings of ceremonial because of who he was. When he is riding to coronation, he is about to take a kingdom, to receive a kingdom, and Jerusalem stands, as it were, symbolically for that kingdom or for its capital. 
He is riding into the holy city, the city of God, so that he may take a kingdom for his people, into which he will usher them, and over which he himself will rule forever and ever. But there is a third event that is mentioned here that had a particular significance in the experience of the Lord at this time. And that is the inquiry that the Gentiles, or the Greeks, made. There were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of the side of Galilee, and beside him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. And it's very clear that this inquiry of the Greeks had a very profound effect upon the Lord. Jesus answered them saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Well, what significance did the Lord see in this inquiry of the Greeks? Well, I think he was seeing this, as it were, as the first fruits of his own finished work. The Old Testament prophets had spoken of the Gentiles coming to his light, and kings to the brightness of his rising. And here already, here are the Gentiles coming to seek after the Lord, to seek to know him, to seek a personal knowledge of him. And the Lord connects this with the hour of his own coming glory. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, very soon, after he had suffered and died, he was going to return to the glory from which he had come when he came into this world, humbling himself. And he prayed to the Father about having that glory restored to him, the glory which I had with thee before the world was. That certainly was true, that he was going to be glorified with the Father. But can we not also say that there is a glory that radiates from the cross of Jesus Christ? Certainly the cross was the instrument of humiliation and degradation and shame, and yet there is a glory that radiates from the cross the glory of the love and the mercy and the grace and the righteousness of God our Saviour. We see the glory of God our Saviour in the sacrifice of a cross. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And then he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone, but if it die, 
it brings of course much fruit. And now we shall turn to think more particularly of what these words are saying to us. And it is clear in the context that these words of our text are, are very closely connected with what the Lord has just now been saying. And it is clear that when he speaks of the grain of wheat falling into the ground and dying, that he is speaking about himself and about what is going to happen to it. Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. If it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. And we shall briefly think of three particular points in connection with the words. First of all, identification between the Lord and his people. And secondly, cost, the costliness that was involved for the Lord. And finally, we can think of fruitfulness or productiveness. If it die, it brings forth much fruit. Well, first of all, then, let us think about the identification that there is between the Lord and his own people. It is clear that the fruit that is to follow from the putting of this grain of wheat in the earth is of the same nature as the seed that is put in the soil. And it is clear from the scripture that the Lord took to himself human nature, that he took bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh in order that he might be fitted to be our redeemer. Unless he had taken human nature, then he could not stand in our human flesh. He could not be our sin bearer or our sin offering. He could not be our great high priest to make intercession for us. And so the eternal God became man. God took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. He had a true human nature. He was very God and very God, but he took to himself true human nature. And he was born of a woman made under the law. It wasn't the appearance of human nature he had. He had the real thing. He had real human nature. And I think that comes through very clearly in the Gospel record. Certainly it comes through that he was the Lord from heaven. That he was somebody who was absolutely unique because he was a divine person. But it comes through very clearly also that he had a human nature that was real, that was identified with 
human nature as we know it. And one place, or indeed several places, where we can see that confirmed in the gospel story is where our Lord was mistaken for an ordinary man. Now I know that it was through unbelief and through lack of understanding that people mistook him for an ordinary man. But nevertheless, the fact that he could be mistaken in that way for an ordinary man is a confirmation of the reality of the human nature that he had. That there was nothing, and we say it with reverence, there was nothing odd about the human nature that our Lord took to himself when he was here on earth. It was so real that he could be mistaken for an ordinary human person. Now as we read the gospel history, we realize that the Lord could feel and could think and reason like ordinary human people. He could feel hunger, he could feel thirst, he could feel exhaustion, he could feel sorrow and disappointment, he could feel brokenness of heart, reproach hath broke my heart, it was said often in the psalm. He could feel shame, he could feel the whole range of human feelings and emotions in that way. And yet, without sin. Now something that the scripture says about them is that he was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. And we have to be careful how, to we, how we understand such terms as these, that he was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. Perhaps the best way to approach it would be in this way. When Adam and Eve were in a condition of innocence and sinlessness in the Garden of Eden, they were exempted from pain and sorrow and suffering and disappointment and all these things. And it was only as a result of sin, as a result of the fall, that such experiences have come into human life. That people have to exhaust themselves with toil. That people suffer shame that people suffer sorrow and misery in one form or another. These are all the fruit of the fall of man. Now when Jesus came into the world, he came with a human nature that was perfect. There was no 
taint of sin attached to his person in any way. He came as the perfect person with a perfect human nature. But although that was so, he was not exempted from the things that have come as part of the fruit of the fall of man. He was not exempted from suffering, from sorrow, from pain, and from all these other things that he experienced when he was here on earth. He was manifested in the likeness of sinful flesh. He had to endure the entail of the fall of man, although he himself was absolutely perfect and without sin. And what we have to say about the Lord is that he came as near us as it was possible for him to come. Sin accepted. He entered fully. He entered fully into our humanity. And it is wonderful. It is amazing to think of that. That the eternal God that the Lord God omnipotent, that he came to take to himself our human nature in order that he might be fitted and that he might be equipped to become our redeemer. But then secondly, we can think of the cost that was involved for our Lord. Now we know that before there can be growth and productiveness and fruitfulness, we know that death has to be accomplished in the seed, in the process of germination and growth. Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. And we can think a little about the cost that was involved for our Lord in securing our salvation. Now, it was a tremendous step of self-humbling on the part of the Lord when he came to humble himself in fashion as a man upon the earth. He who was the everlasting God becoming a little infant in the arms of Mary, his mother. What a step of self-humbling that was in the experience of the eternal God. And we are to consider that it was suffering for the Lord of glory to be living here on earth among sinners of mankind. To be in association with those who are defiled and corrupted by sin. He was perfectly holy and pure to be in daily association 
with sinners like ourselves. That was part of the suffering of our Lord when he was here upon the earth, when he was here as our sin-bearer. Oh, well, he humbled himself to take upon him the form of a servant. He came as the servant of the Father, and he humbled himself to the limit His life was a life of self-denial, of self-humbling, and of self-sacrifice. He was denying himself throughout his life in order that he might serve the Father and that he might secure our redemption. He lived a life of humiliation, humiliation to the lowest degree, and in humbling himself in that way, and in denying himself, he was willing to endure suffering in different ways in order that he might serve the Father and that he might secure the interests of his people whom he came to redeem. <coughs> now we read that he endured the contradiction of sinners against himself. Right from the time that he came into the world, the children of men were against him. He wasn't long born when Herod was seeking to take his life away. And we see, as we read about the three years of his public ministry, we see how again and again he suffered the contradiction of sinners against himself. What must it have meant in the experience of the Lord to be contradicted by sinners of mankind, to be misrepresented, they distorted the truth that he spoke and they misrepresented what he was doing. Imagine what it must have meant to the Lord when they said that he was casting out devils through Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. How hurtful, how terribly hurtful that must have been to the Lord that they were putting down his good works to the instrumentality of the devil. Works that he was doing by the power and by the arm of the Holy Spirit. He endured the contradiction of sinners against himself. Now we are told that he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. His life was a life of obedience, and his life as a life of obedience was a life of suffering. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. And we can never fathom, we can never fathom the extent of the suffering that he experienced 
as he perfectly obeyed the will of the Father in every detail. What an obedience that was. An obedience that was loving and willing and total. It was his meat and his drink to do the Father's will. Now, if we ourselves understand anything about the law of God, the moral law that we have in the Ten Commandments, if we understand the breadth, the comprehensiveness, the scope of these commandments of God and how they take to do with the thoughts and motives of our hearts as well as with our outward actions, then perhaps we may begin to understand what was meant by the perfect obedience of Jesus to the will of the Father. In every single detail, his obedience was total, and it was willing, and it was loving. There are occasions when God's people give a kind of obedience that is reluctant. It is not wholehearted. It is far from perfect. But the obedience of Jesus was total. It was complete. It was flawless. It perfectly met all the requirements of God's holy will and holy commandments. Now, when he had obeyed, and obeyed through suffering, he still had to go beyond that. There was a greater cost that he was to bear. It was not enough even that he perfectly fulfilled all the positive requirements of the law of God. There was something else that was demanded of him if he was to save his people. Not only that he would work out righteousness by his perfect, perfect obedience to the commandments of God, but that he would satisfy the penalty that God's law demanded in respect of all the breaches of law of which they were guilty. And if he had spared himself the cost, then we would not be spared the penalty and the condemnation. And who can understand, who can understand the cost that was involved for the Lord in bearing the cash that was due to sin? The cash of the law of God that was due to sin being directed against him and laid upon him personally because he was our sin-bearer. It involved the wrath of God, the wrath that was infinite, 
that was immeasurable, being upon him, the sword of God being plunged into the soul of his own well-beloved son because he was taking the room and the place of his people. And that is so awful that we cannot even begin to understand it. We cannot begin to understand what was involved in the experience of our Lord when the wrath of the Father was upon him as he suffered and died as the substitute of his people. It was so terrible that he cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He had to enter into the experience of that forsakenness in order that he might drink completely the cup of cursing and of wrath given to him by the Father. That was the cost. And nothing less than that could have made satisfaction for sin. Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. There could not be any redemption. There could not be any salvation apart from the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what the salvation of his people involved for him. Suffering and death. The accursed death of the cross. But let us, in the third and final place, think briefly of the fruitfulness, of the productiveness that results from this death. If it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. This one grain of wheat in which death is accomplished brings forth a great multitude of grains of wheat. Now, there is a very important principle that underlies God's dealing with the race of mankind. And that is the principle of representation of one standing for others or of one standing for many. It was on that basis that God dealt with the race in our first parents. We remember that the Shorter Catechism reminds us that Adam stood not only for himself but for his posterity. Adam was a representative man. He was a covenant head. 
and that meant that if Adam had maintained his innocence, if he had maintained his integrity and his righteousness, if he had served the probation that God had appointed for him and remained perfectly obedient to God, that would have secured blessing for all his posterity after him. He was a covenant head. He was a representative character. But we know, of course, that Adam sinned and fell. And we sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. He broke down the whole race of mankind in his one sin. Now that is a very basic, a very important and fundamental doctrine of our faith. This principle of representation of God dealing with a race on the basis of a covenant with an individual. Now that was the way that God dealt with our first parents. But equally, that is the way in which God deals with the race under the terms of the new covenant that he makes in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the last Adam or the second Adam. Jesus came into the world as a representative character, as a covenant head, the covenant head and representative of his people. And that means that when he was here on earth, he was acting in the interests of all his people whom he came to redeem. In practical terms, what that means is that Christ's people were in him. They were in him representatively when he was here on earth acting in their interests and on their behalf. They were in him in his obedience to the requirements of God's law. They were in him in his sufferings and death. Their death was accomplished in his death. They were in him in his resurrection from the dead. And they were in him in his glorification to the right hand of the Father. He, the one, represented and stood for the many. And he represented a multitude that no man can number. He represented in himself all the people of God, all the elect of God, from the beginning till the end of time. And we are told in the prophecy of Isaiah that he shall see of the travel of his soul. He shall see his seed and he shall be satisfied. It is through Jesus Christ that every single believer of the race of mankind is brought into an experience of salvation 
and will eventually be brought to glory. If it dies, it bringeth forth much fruit. This one death has secured newness of life for all the people of God. But there is another angle from which we can look at the productiveness, at the fruitfulness that issues from this death. It is the death, it is the finished work of Jesus Christ that has secured for the people of God, for the church of God, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost followed Calvary. Jesus had told his disciples that when he returned to glory, he would send another comforter that he might abide with them forever, the Spirit of Truth. And so on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit was poured out. And somebody, I think it is Smeaton, has put it, that the day of Pentecost was the day of the opening of the river of the water of life. The Holy Spirit given to his church. And by the Holy Spirit, the Lord gives every grace and every blessing that his people are going to inherit during the course of their life here on earth. And these are blessings and graces without number. Every blessing that we receive, we receive through the ministry and through the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit that Christ has secured for his people through his own finished work. If it dies, it bringeth forth, forth much fruit. Ah, oh, what a great cluster of blessings and graces without number have been secured by the death of Jesus Christ. Every blessing we receive comes to us as a result of the death that he died. It is a death that is productive of life and life in abundance. And the people of God today are going to testify at his table that they themselves have received of this life and that they are depending upon him for it. Well, may the Lord bless his own word to us. Let us engage in prayer. <coughs> we pray, O Lord, that thou wilt help us to understand thine own word, that thou wilt help us to enter into the meaning of what was involved for our Lord in humbling himself and taking upon him the form of a servant, and becoming obedient unto death. We bless thee that he willingly came, that he denied himself, and that he poured out his own soul to death, the just one in the room of the unjust. And we pray that as we go on in our service now, thou wilt draw near and make thyself real to us through word and ordinance. Graciously hear us and forgive our sin. For Christ's sake. Amen. <clears throat>
we shall sing now in Psalm 72 and at verse 15. Psalm 72 and at verse 15. Yea, he shall live, and given to him shall be of Sheba's gold. For him still shall they pray, and he shall daily be extolled. Of corn and handful in the earth, on tops of mountains high, with prosperous fruit shall shake, like trees on Lebanon that be. The city shall be flourishing, her citizens abound, a number shall like to the grass that grows upon the ground. These three verses from verse 15. Yea, he shall live, and given to him shall be of Sheba's gold. Customary uh, before the administration of the sacrament to fence the Lord's table. And the purpose of the fencing is to make clear who these people are who are entitled to sit at the table and to make a distinction between them and those who are not qualified to take their places there. Now, we may ask are the people who should be sitting at the Lord's table? Are these people who feel themselves to be so much better than other people, who feel their own excellence and superiority in different ways? Is that why they feel themselves fit to sit at the table of the Lord? Well, if you could see into the hearts of God's people sitting at the table, you would discover that it is not their view at all that they are so much better than other people. What they are aware of 
really is the sin, the demerit, the imperfection in our own lives. That is something that has been brought home to them, brought home to them very clearly by the Lord himself, so that when they sit at the table, it is not at all their intention to indicate that they are so much better than other people. In fact, they have such an awareness of their own demerit and of their own sin that they know that they, <clears throat> that they have to trust in and depend upon the righteousness and the merits of someone else, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when they sit at the table, they are indicating that they are depending upon him, upon his finished work, upon his righteousness, upon his merits. Now, when they are sitting at the table and when they are receiving the sacrament, they stretch out the hand and they take the elements of bread and wine and partake of them. And what in, in, in fact they are saying is that they are as dependent upon the Lord in their spiritual lives as people are in daily life upon food and drink. We all know that to sustain and to nourish our lives, our bodies, we have to take food and we have to, to take fluids. For God's people are aware that in a spiritual sense, their spiritual life is equally dependent upon the Lord. They have to be receiving from him day by day what is going to nourish them, what is going to refresh them, what is going to strengthen them, and going to build them up in a most holy faith. And the sacrament of the supper has been appointed by the Lord as a means of grace for his people. A means, one of the means through which he communicates his grace to their souls. And the sacrament is something that is supplementing the word. Now, it is through the word that the Lord is revealing himself to his people. It is by his word that he has brought them and through the Holy Spirit into a saving relationship with himself. But in the sacrament, there is something that <coughs> is able <coughs> to reach to the believer through the sense of touch and of taste. And it is as if the Lord were making an accommodation to their weakness, to the weakness of their faith. Now you know how it is that in our schools, in our educational system, teachers use visual aids of one kind or another to make clear to the pupils 
the ideas, the thoughts that they are trying to put across and to, to sow in their minds. That is so that through the eye uh, they may be able to grasp more clearly the ideas that they are trying to teach them. Well, the Lord in the sacrament has given what is equivalent to a visual aid. Through the sense of touch and taste, he is making himself real to his people. They take and they eat and drink bread and wine, the symbols of the broken body and of the shed blood. And this is a means of grace. And it's a means of grace not just for very strong, robust Christians. It is a means of grace to help the weak faith of his own children, to bring to them a better grasp, a better understanding of what he himself has done for them in this finished work. Now, it is, it is a provision that he has made for his own people. It is only those who are united by faith to the Lord who can benefit from partaking of the bread and wine at the Lord's table. There are many people in our own day, they have been there long before our day, many people who think that even although they do not go to church at all, if they go once or twice a year to the communion, that that is going to do them a lot of good. It will do them no good at all, unless they are in union with the Lord by faith. When the Lord was being crucified, there were Roman soldiers round about him, who were actually handling his body. They would have had to handle him physically in order to crucify him. We have no record of whether that had any particular effect in their experience. Although they had actual contact physically with the real body of the Lord. And yet there are people who think that by participating in the symbols of his body, even although they have no faith in him, that that is going to do them good. It cannot. It is not a converting ordinance. It is a means of grace for the people of God. But it is indeed a, mean, a means of refreshment, of encouragement, of strengthening to those who are, are already united by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord himself, through the mysterious working of his Holy Spirit, is able to bless to them the fact that they take the bread and wine, the symbols of his own broken body and shed blood. Now we can read the scripture for our correct guidance and we shall read in Galatians chapter 5 and at verse 16. Galatians chapter 5 and at verse 16. <clears throat> this I say then walk in the spirit 
and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. <coughs> Now while we are singing some verses in Psalm 118 and at verse 15, the elders will bring forward the elements and place them on the table. Psalm 118 and at verse 15. In dwellings of the righteous is heard the melody of joy and health. The Lord's right hand doth ever valiantly. The right hand of the mighty Lord exalted is on high. The right hand of the mighty Lord doth ever valiantly. I shall not die but live, and shall the works of God discover. The Lord hath me chastised sore, but not to death given over. O set ye open unto me the gates of righteousness. Then will I enter into them, and I the Lord will bless. We shall sing until the elements are placed on the table. In dwellings of the righteous is heard the melody of joy and health.
we shall now read the warrant that we have for the administration of this sacrament. We have it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and at verse 23. <coughs> but I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation or judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation, and the rest will I set in order when I come. We read that on the night on which the Lord was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks, and we shall give thanks uh, according to his example. We pray, O Lord, that thou wilt give us thankful hearts, for it is only through thy grace that we can have true thanksgiving in thy presence. We acknowledge that we are so slow to recognize that thou art the giver of every good and perfect gift. Help us to see that thou hast given the costliest gift of all. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? We are humbled, O Lord, as we realize that thou didst remember us when we had no thought of thee. We bless thee that there was love in the heart of God for his people from everlasting, and that in the fullness of time he sent his Son into the world to seek and to save that which was lost, and to give himself a ransom for many. And we pray that thou would reveal Jesus to us, in the glory of his passion and work today. Grant that our eyes may be directed upwards to him who is at thy right hand, exalted a prince and a saviour, to give repentance and remission of sins. And we pray that he may be very real to each one of us, so that as we participate in this sacrament, we may be aware 
that he is the one whose body was broken and whose blood was shed and that it is only through his humiliation and suffering that we can attain to spiritual life and to life eternal. We pray that the Lord himself may be present with us at the table and that he may speak in tones of grace and of love to each one of his people, that their fellowship may be with himself as they are fellowship one with the other around the ordinance. We pray particularly for those who are sitting at thy table for the first time, that thou wilt give them thy grace and thy strength, and that thou wilt manifest thyself to them graciously and in another way than thou doest unto the world. And we pray that thou wilt so draw near to each one of us, that our waiting together upon thee in this way may be profitable to ourselves and honouring to thee. Help us to be aware of the wonder of the provision thou hast made for thy church here on earth. Thou hast supplied every provision to meet its need. Thou thyself dost sustain it and uphold it in its journey through this world. And we thank thee that thou art sanctifying thy people, that thou art working in them to will and to do of thy good pleasure, and that thou art taking them on step by step on that way that leads to life eternal. Thou dost lead them forth by the right way, and we pray that they may be able to lean upon their beloved as they go up from the wilderness. We pray therefore, O Lord, that thou wilt hear us, that thou wilt be with us, and that thou wilt bless each one of us beyond what we are able to ask or even to think. For Christ's sake. Amen. There is a word of our Lord say, that I would like to think of with you for a moment or two that he addressed to his disciples, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Fear not, little flock, he said. That was the good shepherd himself comforting and reassuring his own disciples. Fear not, little flock. Now, the Good Shepherd himself is with his people as they go through life. He's with them always. He never leaves them, never forsakes them. And the awareness of that itself should be comforting and reassuring for them. That the Lord is with them as they follow his steps through this world. Now, the words that he addressed there to his disciples indicate the care and the concern that the Lord has for his own people. He would have them to be without fear, without unnecessary fear. It's not just that the Lord wants them eventually, finally, to be saved 
he wants them to be without fear while they are going through this life. Fear not, little flock. And there is no one who understands the fears of his own people like the Lord himself. Now, no doubt, it may be true of many people today here in this house of worship that they have fears of one kind or another that trouble them. And probably there are some of these fears that they would never dream of mentioning to any human friend. They would reckon that nobody could understand the fear, the anxiety that they have in their hearts. But one thing that you can be assured of is that the Lord understands. You can come to him and tell him of your fears and of your anxieties. The things that you cannot tell to anybody else. And he understands. He has a compassionate ear. He is gracious. He is tender-hearted. He shows loving kindness and tender mercy. Now what kind of fears may it be that trouble you? Well, it may be that you are afraid that in some way or another you may bring dishonor upon the name or upon the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. That by something you may say or do you may bring dishonor upon his name. Or it may be <coughs> that you are afraid that one of these days the devil is going to get the upper hand over you, that he's going to gain the mastery. You are well aware of his temptations day by day. You know how weak you are, you know how subtle he is, and you are afraid that he's going to overcome you. Or it may be that you are afraid that after all you may be deceived, that you may be deceiving yourself. Perhaps you have been for quite a few years a follower of the Lord and yet there are fears like that that sneak in into your heart. Fears that trouble you that spoil your peace. And the Lord himself is saying to his people, fear not, little flock. And when he uses that term, little flock, it's a term of endearment. It's a term that expresses to them the love and the care and the concern that he has for them. Fear not, little flock. He is saying that today to his people in this world, surrounded by fears of one kind or another. Fear not, little flock. Well, we read that on the night in which the Lord was betrayed. He took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. And in the same manner also the cup, after they had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, drink ye all of it. 
for as oft as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death until he come.